are in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And just a little bit of review. I want to go back over the idea of the theocracy. We brought this up last week. And the idea that God is the king. God is at the center of their lives. No matter if it be a religious matter, a civil matter, a moral matter regarding ourselves. Or if it be a domestic matter regarding our family or our home life or something of that nature. Last week we uh, were talking about chapters 12 and through about chapter 16 for the most part. We were looking at things that relate to a religious or ceremonial matter. And although we, we say that, we at times we're looking at things that don't necessarily pertain specifically to that. But perhaps in the overall picture, it may relate some. So these lines are a little bit blurred as far as our text goes. Sometimes you'll, we'll go back and forth, toggle back and forth between those. And tonight we're going to be going into that civil, the lower left-hand side of the square of the civil area. And you'll see as we are looking at chapters 12 through 26, Last week we uh, ended with the ceremonial type laws, religious matters, and then we get into tonight the civil and the national laws, which covers the last part of chapter 16 and about through uh, about half of chapter 21. You probably thought that I forgot to go over the last part of chapter 16, but I meant to leave that till tonight. This is one of those cases where Bible divisions, chapter divisions really don't fit too well. And Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18, in my mind, really begins a new phase of the discussion. He's beginning to talk more about civil things, governmental ideas, things relating to judges and officers and that matter. As we look, I want to go over, read with you the last few verses of chapter 16. We're in Deuteronomy 16, verse 18. Judges and officers shalt thou make in all thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, according to thy tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. Thou shalt not wrest judgment, or twist it, or pervert justice. Thou shalt not respect persons, take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise, and perverts the words of the righteous. That which is altogether just shalt thou follow, that thou mayest live and inherit the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. I want you to hone in on the words, perhaps your virgin has this, justice and righteousness. In the verse 18, the last phrase there, righteous judgment. Verse 19 might say, you shall not rest or pervert justice. Those two words are very interesting, particularly in the Old Testament. That couplet of words, justice and righteousness, are found many times in the the Old Testament writings. And it's interesting how they're paired together. When you go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 18, Abraham is said to have led his household in justice and righteousness. David was a king that was said to have led with justice and righteousness. 2 Samuel 8, verse 15, David, this is attributed to David. He led the lands, led the people in justice and righteousness. Also, our king, Christ, in Isaiah 9, verse 7, is said to be coming 
prophesied to come and lead in justice and righteousness. Isaiah 9 verse 7. So I think this, this couplet, this pair of words that's often found together in, in the Old Testament in particular is very interesting. And it's something that God is going to tell us here in this section of Deuteronomy that it's required in those that are leaders, those that are officers of the people to, to rule in justice and righteousness. And quickly, just to define those words, justice is what we might consider fair and equitable uh, matters uh, or when judgment is come into play and trying to decide what uh, to decide in matters that are, are between two people, perhaps. And the attitude of righteousness or the idea of righteousness is that which is a, a right act or a deed that is done that is according to law. In this case, God's law. Whatever is done that is according to law, it is righteousness. So those two words are found together quite often. And I want to point that out so you see that as we read through, not only tonight, but even the rest of Deuteronomy. Perhaps we'll see that uh, some more, those words. And let me add to that, too, that you could look at these two words and not necessarily see them in the same verse. Sometimes you'll see it in the same context. In other words, it might be the word justice in one verse and not necessarily in Deuteronomy. I'm talking about the entire Old Testament. And then maybe a verse or two later, you'll see the word righteousness. So these are things, these are ideas that are very important to God. And as we read, I want us to, to see that. And not only that, but uh, Isaiah... Uh, will mention this several times. He mentions those two words. He pairs those two words together several times. Verse 21, he says, Thou shalt not plant thee an Asherah of any kind of tree beside the altar of the Lord thy God, which thou shalt make. The Asherah would be, uh, typically is the female God. Baal would be the male version of God. Asherah would be the female some think that the Asherah, and we wonder, well, why did he assert this here in this text? And perhaps it is because some think that along with the Asherah, there was a symbol of justice. You know, our nation has a symbol of justice, don't we? We have a lady holding a balance, and I think with the blindfold, and that's a symbol of justice. It is thought perhaps Asherah had a symbol, their idols would typically have a symbol of justice. And God's saying, don't confuse perhaps my justice, my version, my requirements with what you find in the land, the Asherah. So let's go on to chapter 17. And again, this section that we see here in the last part of 16, I think, sets the tone for what God requires in his officers, his governors, his judges, his priests. We're going to see that his priests are actually involved in matters that relate to all of these categories that we saw in a theocracy. So governors and officers, chapter 17. Let's go over the questions uh, briefly here. Questions on chapter 17. What would become an abomination unto them? Sacrifices having a blemish or a defect. Okay. Before an idolatrous one could be put to death, what had to be done? Has to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. 
for a matter that is difficult in judgment, what were they required to do? Okay, here's that idea we just spoke of. Go to a priest, go to a judge at the appointed place, uh, and uh, they would help determine what is to be done. What, God, what did God foresee and command regarding any kings that they might have in the future? Okay, don't multiply wives or gold and silver and horses. This king should do what with the law? Read it. Read it daily. Keep it very handy. Now Deuteronomy 17. The uh, verse 1 begins a little bit seemingly maybe with verse 1. Shall we say maybe you wonder why it's in here according to what we've talked about. If he's talking about civil, national, government affairs, government matters, why does he insert this? That's, again, that's why I think some of these lines, don't, we can't really draw a distinct line. Some of this is going to carry over and spill over into the matters of idolatry, uh, the matters that a priest or a judge is going to have to make a determination, is idolatry involved? And, and so I think this is one of the reasons that some of this uh, plays into that. And perhaps that the idolatrous, uh, the idol gods, they don't have such a requirement as verse 1 that their offerings are without blemish. They don't have that type of offering uh, requirement. So verse 2, if there be found in the midst of thee within any of your gates which the Lord thy God giveth thee, a man or woman, that has gone and served other gods, as verse 3 indicates. And this would be different from what we saw a couple of weeks ago where there's an idolatrous person that say, come go with us. Come and we want you to be interested in idols that we serve and worship. This is not the case, it doesn't seem here. This person is not out enticing one, but is it any different nonetheless? Is the ultimate decision about an idolatrous person any different? No, it's not. Does it matter that they go around and entice people? Or if they don't, God is wanting to get rid of idolatry, period, no matter what. So we continue, verse 3. They've gone and served other gods. They worship them, or the sun, and the moon, and the host of heaven, which I have not commanded thee. And be told thee, and you've heard of it, Do you just sweep it under the rug? Verse 4, pretend we didn't hear that. What if it's one of our family members? What do we do? Pretend we didn't hear it, brush it under the rug? That's not what we've seen so far in this book, is it? We inquire diligently. Behold, if it be true, we bring it before those leaders or those officers. And then ultimately we're looking at last part of verse 5, what happens? If it is true, if it's determined that it is true, what happens? This is a very familiar punishment that we're going to see. We've seen it already. We see it again here that the punishment that is due a person is very severe, is very harsh in our minds. But God shows how serious, how ugly sin is. Romans 3, through the, the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
And what we're reading here tonight, we're reading how ugly sin is. This is, this is what God, how God views sin. He wants those to be in, that are involved in it to be stoned to death with stones, the last part of verse 5. So at the mouth of two or three witnesses, verse 6, he that is to be put to death at the mouth of one witness, at, in contrast, what happens? If you have one witness, it shall not be put to death. Verse 7, the hand of the witnesses shall be what? Be first. This is another thing that we've already seen. Those that are witnesses, we talked about this a week or two ago. Those that are witnesses that know about the evil, they can't ignore it. They have to expose it. It has to be inquired diligently to find out if it's true. And we see, again, the diligence that it requires to get rid of sin and to keep this, this congregation pure. And holy before God. Okay, the, the part of this is backing up into chapter 16 as we catch up with the outline here. Governors and officers are to have no respect of persons, as we saw in chapter 16. They shall take no bribes, and that certainly goes right into the idea of being just, being just and fair, being righteous. And then, as we've seen here in the first part of chapter 17, there are to be no idolaters. And we're to inquire diligently regarding that. There must be two to three witnesses, and if it is true, they must be stoned to death. Now, verse 8. What if a matter, if we're looking at a matter that is very hard to judge, it's very hard to determine what should be done, what is the, when we throw up our hands and we're wringing our hands and wondering what to do, what does he outline here that is to be done? You shall arise and go where? Last part of verse 8 says, you'll arise and go to what place? Have you heard that phrase before? The place that God shall choose? Hopefully you've heard that before. You go to the place that God shall choose and you come before priests and Levites and the judges. Verse 9 it's interesting here, we think about a priest, normally we think about a priest being involved in matters that pertain strictly to offerings and sacrifices, don't we? We don't typically think about them being involved too much in judgmental affairs, in judging. But here we see they are part of that. We're going to see that uh, later in this book and later in this chapter even, some of those matters. Verse 9, again, thou shalt come unto the priests and the Levites and unto the judge that shall be in those days, and thou shalt inquire, and they shall show thee the sentence of judgment. What if you don't like what they say? What if, you don't, what if it doesn't sound good to you? What do you do? You, it. you have to accept it. Because what? Who are they put there? On behalf of God. When they determine what the matter is or what should be done, you hearken, you listen. This is not advice. This is not a recommendation. God is saying you listen to them. Verse 12, the man that doeth presumptuously and not hearkening unto the priest that standeth to minister, what happens to this person? Verse 12, he must die. Do we take it very seriously? Very seriously. 
Do we serve the same God today? Our laws are not exactly the same in the New Covenant. Many of them are. I hope we're seeing that many of these laws and, and uh, precepts are carried into the New Testament. We serve the same God today that hates sin just as much. And he's very serious about it. He expects and wants us to be the same as well. Okay, the matter's too difficult. We go before the priest and the judge, and we do according to what they say, their determination. Now, the last paragraph, or the last couple of paragraphs here, we're dealing, we're dealing with kings, the matters regarding kings. Verse 14, when you come into the land, you, you will desire here, seems prophetic, that he would say you'll get into the land and you will want to set up a king over you to be like the nations that are round about you. Last part of verse 14. You will want to do that. But God says, if you do that, beware, because they will want to multiply horses. Verse 16, they'll want to go down to Egypt and get those best horses that are military-grade military horses. The best we can get, you'll want to go down there, get horses, and multiply wives, and multiply gold and silver. Verse 16 and 17. And certainly this would remind you of a king by the name of who? Solomon. First Kings 11. Solomon seems, seemed destined to uh, break all of these laws, didn't he? didn't he? Multiply horses, wives, silver, and gold. You think about the idea of well, let, let's look at the next paragraph, and we'll just lump all this together. Not only shall he not do this, but what he should do is keep a copy of the law. Keep a copy of this law handy so he can read it occasionally. Read, verse 19 says, read therein all the days of his life. And I take that to be daily. There's no way, other way I can understand it. Read therein all the days of his life. So we have a king here that is so dedicated to God that he is interested in the law that we do what the law says. Now let's think about all of these ideas here together. The kings of Israel, he says, shall be one that God shall choose. I overlooked that there in verse 14. God shall choose this man. He is not to be a foreigner. Not to multiply horses, not to multiply wives, gold and silver, and to, to be diligent in a study of the law. Take that in contrast to the kings of the other nations around about them. Would any of those kings and the other nations around about them be one that God would choose? Would be one that is a foreigner? Particularly, look at, would he be one that multiplies horses? He definitely would be, wouldn't he? Would he multiply gold and silver and wives? You know, that was typical of a king in those days to have show his status by multiplying wives, multiplying horses, especially these fine horses out of Egypt. He looks like a great leader. All these wives, all this gold and silver, God said, I don't want you to look like that at all. You're not to put your faith and your trust in these. You go down in Egypt and you 
seek to find horses there that are of the type that are used in war, what typically might you rest your hope upon? Those horses. What about if you multiply gold and silver? You're going to rest your hope in, in your wealth? If you multiply wives, we saw what happens as we look forward. What happens if you multiply wives? What happened to Solomon? They turned his heart from God. The king of Israel is not to be like any other king in any way. He's to lead and to lead with a view toward the law. He, God wants a king that will be diligent, not someone that opens the code of, of legal matters that have been determined in some court, set forth by some lawyer. God wants a king that opens the Bible and leads his people with that, doesn't he? That's what he wants. Now, all that aside, God is not saying here that it's okay for you to have a king in the first place. This is just an allowance that he's going to allow them to have as we look at the book of 1 Samuel chapter 8. There's other things that are mentioned in Deuteronomy that he's going to prophetically talk about that God is going to allow, but it's not necessarily God's ideal. And this is one of those cases. All right, any thoughts on chapter 17? Yes. Some of these uh, stiff penalties seem pretty inflexible and certainly seem unmerciful. But in fact, the, the opposite is the case because what you see is there's mercy because there's a deterrent against evil. It's a deterrent for somebody who's tempted to do something like fall into idolatry because when you see how, um, how strict that sentence is, um, there's a deterrent there. But the further deterrent that's spoken of in verse 13 is that the, um, when something like this ha- takes place, the rest of the people are going to hear and be afraid and will not act presumptuously again. And so they're better off for justice being carried out. And the same thing is said in the book of Ecclesiastes because it speaks of it from the opposite. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not carried out speedily, so the hearts of the sons of men are fully set in themselves to do evil. It's like if you don't carry out this justice, they will want to do evil. And we get a similar thing in the New Testament that as a deterrent against sin when in 1 Timothy 5 and like verse 20, I think, he says, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may be fearful of sinning. And so it's uh, God's ways are, are good and right. Mm-hmm. Very good. That phrase, hear and fear, keep that in your mind. And we're going to cover that, hopefully, in, in just a few more minutes. We're going to talk about that even more. Okay, chapter 18. Uh, what did God provide for the Levites? Okay, he took care of them, though he didn't give them an inheritance. They were taken care of. They were given a portion of the people's offerings and the first fruits. Who is said to be an abomination unto God? I'm sorry, I didn't. 
Okay. Describe the prophet that shall come. He would be like unto, like unto Moses. And this prophet is Christ, and I want, hopefully you uh, prove that. We'll look at that in just a moment as well. What rule was to be used to prove the prophet in their day? Come again. If it comes to pass, okay, and uh, one speaks, one you may have one that speaks without authority, completely without authority. That would be the false prophet. All right, let's get into the text here in chapter 18. <clears throat> chapter 18, verse 1 through 8. We're looking at the Levites. And the priest, in the first eight verses here, even all the tribe of Levi shall have no portion nor inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the offerings of the Lord made by fire and his inheritance, and they shall have no inheritance among their brethren. God didn't give them a land. If you recall, we looked, I think we looked a few weeks ago about the land divisions on a map. You, didn't, you don't see one separated for Levi, the tribe of Levi and the priests. They were to be uh, mixed in among the people. They didn't have an inheritance, so to speak, as such uh, a land among their brethren. But they did have, God took care of them. Verse 3, he said, you shall uh, give the priests their due from the people that offer a sacrifice, whether it be an ox or sheep, that they shall give unto the priest, the shoulder, and the two cheeks, and the stomach. The first fruits of thy grain, and thy new wine, and thine oil, the first fruits of the fleece of thy sheep, Thou shalt give him. And then verse 6, if a Levite come from any of your gates out of Israel, then this would be afar off from the place that God shall choose. If, he, if he's afar off, if he's out from the remote areas of the land, he shall come. If he wants to minister, verse 7, in the name of the Lord his God, all his brethren, the Levites do, who stand there before the Lord, and they shall have portions to eat. They'll be taken care of. If they decide to do that, they want to come and be close to the tabernacle to, to work, they can do such. And they should not be caused to fear because they would be taken care of. They shall have, verse 8 says, they shall have like portions to eat besides that which cometh of the sale of his patrimony or his inheritance. So those are the priests and the Levites. And if you read verse 3, it doesn't really sound like the best of the sacrifice, the, the cheeks, Apparently this is the, the, we're looking at the shoulder, which sounds okay, but the cheeks and the stomach don't really sound too appetizing, do they? Pardon? The, uh, but at, those, at that time, this was something that be, uh, it was well thought of. It was the best of the sacrifice. You're to save that for the priests. And they were given the first fruits. They were to be taken care of by God. Now verse 9 through the end of the chapter, <clears throat> we're looking at prophets. We're looking at the idea of prophets and how do we tell what prophet is a good prophet, which is a bad prophet, uh, how to consider prophets and uh, so forth. Verse 9, when you're come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There will be people there that you will uh, 
hereof that have offered their children, their son or daughter, in the fire. Verse 10. Made them pass through the fire that uh, used divination, witchcraft, foretelling of the future, enchantments, sorcery. Uh, there are people there that will, uh, you'll see that use necromancy. All sorts of things like this that they will be involved in. So he's saying here that what I term this is that this is the false prophet of the false god. We're looking at verse 9 through 22, false prophets versus true prophets. This first section we're looking at a false prophet of a false god. Not only is his God false, but he is false to boot. Verse 12, whosoever doeth these things is an abomination unto the Lord, and because of these abominations the Lord thy God doth drive them out. That's the reason God wanted to drive them out, because they committed these abominations. But you, in contrast, verse 13, shall be perfect for these nations that thou shalt dispossess, hearken unto them. They listen to them, and they do these things. Now the true prophet of the true God is highlighted in verse 15 through verse 19. The true prophet is described this way. God says, a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, liken to me, unto him shall you hearken. Now this is speaking of Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of that prophecy. He is the true prophet of the true God. Moses is described as such as, as well. He is like unto me, he says. And he goes back into history to recall the time in, in Mount Sinai when the people said, no, we don't want to go near to God. Moses, you go near and you hear what he has to say. We don't want to be near. We, you go and you listen to what God has to say. and You come and speak to us. And God said, verse 17, they have well said that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet. And sort of in a parallel to what he did in Exodus chapter 20, God says, I'm going to do a parallel here and raise up a prophet that will come to you and speak to you like Moses has on my behalf and tell you what the words of God are. And Moses says here, God shall raise up a prophet like unto me that has heard the words of God directly, the law of God. Now, in, in the last section, verse 20 through 22, we have a false prophet of the true God. So we've had a false prophet of the false God, a true prophet of the true God, and then the last section, a false prophet of the true God, the real God. Verse 20, the prophet that shall speak a word presumptuously, in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And certainly he includes the idol gods as well, even in that description. If you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. The prophet hath spoken presumptuously, Thou shalt not be afraid of him. Don't be concerned about him. Now we look at this in contrast to what we saw in Deuteronomy 13. In Deut Deuteronomy 13, a prophet is mentioned there in the first few verses that is described as one that is trying to teach you 
but he is actually speaking words that are not even from God. So he says there in chapter 13, you don't follow him because he didn't speak the words of God. And here he's looking at a little bit more the idea if the thing that he talks about doesn't come to pass, you know for sure that he is not a prophet, a, a true prophet. Now I want to go back, uh, let's look at the idea here first. We'll look at the idea as we look back over this chapter. The idea in verse 10, the very horrific description of those that are worshiping idols. The god Molech here is referred to as uh, the God here doesn't use him by name, but the God Molech, they're known to have put their children in the fire, made them pass through the fire to worship their idol God Molech. And God says, I don't want you to have anything to do with this. And it's interesting, I think all of this is part and parcel to the same idea. Idolatrous behavior, divination, witchcraft, sorcery, necromancy, all of that. He lumps it all into the same ball. But I want you to think for just a moment about the idea of offering our children to Molech. Offering our children. Molech was the god of fire. Here he says, I don't want you to have anything to do with that behavior. All too often I think we, as it were, offer our children to Molech today. We allow them or maybe, or maybe I should say we neglect them. We allow them to raise themselves. And we are not concerned about what they do, where they are, what they're watching, what they're doing when we're not around. And are we offering our children to Molech in that sense? I'm afraid all too often we have done essentially the same thing as they did by allowing our children just to raise themselves and to do what they want to do and not be concerned about what they're watching, what they're doing, who they're with, what they're learning, what they're being taught. Sometimes I think we offer our children up to the God Molech. You know, you think about a child that they were offering to Molech, if it's a very young child, his eternal destiny is where? Think about a child that we have raised and we have, so to speak, offered that child to Molech. And he grows up and he cements those behaviors. What happens to his eternal destiny? Something to think about. Now, the prophet like Moses that we see in verse 15, that Moses is a prophet of God. He is unlike any other prophet. I want you to think about the ideas that we've seen here in this paragraph. And if you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 3, this is where this is fulfilled in the New Testament. The sermon is being preached here to a mostly Jewish audience that understands who Moses is in Acts 3, verse 22. He finishes his sermon, Peter does, by saying, Moses indeed, verse 22, Acts 3, verse 22. 
Moses indeed said, A prophet shall the Lord God raise up unto you from among your brethren like unto me. To him shall you hearken in all things whatsoever he shall speak to you. He goes on and talks about all the prophets that followed Samuel. Verse 24, Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and them that followed after Samuel. As many have spoken, they also told of these days that are to come. Peter said, I'm preaching a sermon and we're living in that day that these prophets look forward to. So Moses was a prophet and there was not to be another until Christ in the same type that he is. He differentiates in verse 24, those that were of Samuel and after are a different type prophet. Now, how is that exactly? In looking at Moses, and we won't go to all these places, but Moses is a, was a mediator. We've talked about Moses being a mediator, interceding on behalf of the people. He put himself in their place. They were about to be destroyed by God, and Moses mediated for, on behalf of the people. He is the law giver to the people. He received the law from God, and he gave that law to the people. In that sense, he is the representative of the law, of the words of God, the very words of God to these people. And he is indeed a prophet, spoke face to face with God. So there are some other things we could highlight, but, but those th- three, I think, are worth mentioning, that Moses is a prophet, he's a mediator between God and his people. He's lawgiver. He's a prophet that spoke face to face, very intimately with with. God. Any thoughts on chapter 18? Okay, chapter 19. What cities are spoken of again here in this chapter? What type of cities? Cities of refuge. And what was the purpose of these cities? Okay. How could the cities of refuge be abused? Someone that seeks asylum there, everybody would want to go there, wouldn't they? But, so that's the way it could be abused. Everybody would want to go there, and we have to cut it off. It's only for certain people that have uh, killed unintentionally. Uh, What should be done with the one committing intentional murder? They must die. How should they regard their neighbor's landmark? Okay, don't don't move it. And here we see again the rules that are established regarding testimony that there be two or three witnesses. Now let's uh, go through chapter 19. The Lord will set apart cities for thee. Verse 2, three cities. And he talks about three more, refers to three more, and I I guess that's perhaps the other three on the other side. That's the way I understand that. But in uh, the the rest of that section, we referred to that earlier in the study of Deuteronomy as well. But notice as we go into verse 4 here, he that kills his neighbor unawares or unwittingly, unintentionally, we would say. This city of refuge is designed for him to seek refuge there. And here we're going back to the idea of the justice, the fairness of God to take care of people that have committed murder. 
And you think about the, the family and the friends of someone that's been murdered. They might want to latch on to that fellow, wouldn't they? So he gives them a safe haven. He gives them a city of refuge to take, take himself to where he can find safety and security and be uh, taken care of. Now verse 10, the innocent blood, uh, for that innocent blood be not shed in the midst of thy land. God does not want innocent blood, the one who is committed man, uh, who is a manslayer or manslaughter, to be differentiated, that is, from the murderer who committed premeditated murder. God wants to take care of that innocent man. So he gives them a city of refuge to do so. But verse 11, if any man hate his neighbor, lie in wait and do so in a premeditated way, can he go to that city as well and find refuge? No. There we see the abuse of that city of refuge. And again, we're, we're looking at the justice and righteousness of God. He wants that in his people, particularly we're seeing here in this section, he wants that in his judges, his officers, his priests, those that make determination on matters of people's lives and murder and any kind of crime and whatsoever it might be. Verse 14, if you have a landmark that's set of old time, don't move it. Period. Don't move it. God uh, Designed for that to be put in place and not to be moved. Now the last section here, we're looking at the idea of testimony or witnesses that are, are given. The idea of witnesses here, he says, one witness shall not rise up against another. You can't just come up with, with something and say, this person committed this crime, he cheated me, he stole from me, he took my property, took my possessions... God sets forth the determination that any of these matters have to be by two or three witnesses. Verse 15, for if any iniquity, any sin, any sin that he sinneth at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three, shall a matter be established. If an unrighteous witness shall rise up against a man to testify against him of wrongdoing, well, if it be determined... You study the matter. You make diligent inquisition. You inquire diligently, verse 18. The judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be a false witness and have testified falsely, what does he receive as his punishment? Whatever he wanted done. So here's that idea, the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Again, very uh, strict laws that God set forth. He wants his people to follow in judgment. He wants his officers, the judges, the priests, those that are in places to determine matters between people. He wants them to rule in justice and righteousness. And he lays out exactly what that means by all of these occasions here. The idea of two or three witnesses is one that is very interesting in Scripture as well. We, I think we originally see that in the book of Numbers, chapter 35, where he sets up the idea of the cities of refuge. And we see it here. We saw it again in Deuteronomy 17, as we highlighted. We see it again here. 
But it's something that we don't leave entirely in the Old Testament, is it? Christ in Matthew 18 brings that idea forward into the New Testament by saying if you have a matter between two, two brethren, you must have two to bring it before the church. How many witnesses do we have? Two or three witnesses. Paul as well confirms that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, against a brother do not receive an accusation unless it be at the mouth of two or three witnesses. 1 Timothy 5, verse 19, I think was alluded to earlier. Against not an elder, don't bring an accusation unless it be by two or three witnesses. So that is something, as we talked about, some of these precepts and ideas, we don't leave everything we're studying in the Old Testament. Some of these are brought forward, brought forward by Christ, brought forward by the writings of the New Testament writings. And so we see some of these ideas that we're studying carried forward. Certainly the hatred for sin should be just as intense as it was in the Old Testament. And one other thing as we're looking at this chapter, I told you I would try to bring this idea up here in verse 20. Those that remain shall hear and fear. This extreme, this harsh punishment. God says, verse 20, those that remain shall hear and fear and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil in the midst of thee. We saw that earlier in chapter 17, that idea. And I find it interesting in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira are smitten with death by God that it is said in Acts 5 verse 11, these two same words are found there again, that the people heard and they feared because of what happened. They heard and they feared. And actually the church at that time grew and it multiplied. Their faith grew and multiplied. So we see there a case where this works. God's design and God's precepts work when they're put into action. Okay, we better stop there. I appreciate your thoughts and your participation.